Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. Four teams remain in the quest to win Super Bowl 52. We'll talk about how they got here, who might move on, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 97 of The Bridge. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America here on Wednesday, January 17th, 2018, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America Monday through Friday with a brand new show on Wednesday nights on the East Coast, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available immediately after that broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode and additional content from the show later on Wednesday night. On iTunes, under The Bridge Sports Podcast, or on my website at londonbridge.com. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text into the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The Pittsburgh Steelers spent the later part of the regular season and the playoffs with games against the New England Patriots circled on their calendar and were quite vocal about that. It started with head coach Mike Tomlin talking publicly about the regular season encounter three weeks before the game was actually played in week 15, which the Pats would win by a field goal. Heading into the playoffs, Pittsburgh sought its revenge, and though the Steelers were set to host the Jacksonville Jaguars in the divisional round, a team that had handled them 30-9 in the regular season, safety Mike Mitchell looked ahead earlier in the week, saying of a possible rematch with the Patriots, quote, we can play them in hell, we can play them in Haiti, we can play them in New England, we going to win. Even on the morning of the Jacksonville game, running back Le'Veon Bell tweeted out, I love round twos. We'll have two round twos in back-to-back weeks. Of course, as we know, there would be no second round two, with the Jags winning the game 45-42, which also resulted in Jacksonville's official Twitter account addressing the Mitchell remarks by saying, quote, You can play them on Madden all offseason. The Steelers have developed a culture of cockiness, despite not winning a title since 2008 and making the Super Bowl since 2010. 
From quarterback Ben Roethlisberger stating that he might not have it anymore after throwing five interceptions in the first loss to the Jaguars and mulling retirement at different points this past season, to Le'Veon Bell saying he would retire before signing another franchise tag with the Steelers, to head coach Mike Tomlin not making sure this was all kept in-house. Of course, he did try once. After Pittsburgh beat the Chiefs in last year's divisional playoffs to advance to the AFC Championship game against the Patriots, Tomlin gave a fiery speech after that game, warning his team to keep a low profile in the week leading up to the Patriots game. Unfortunately, wide receiver Antonio Brown didn't seem to hear him since he was recording the entire speech on Facebook Live. Let's take a look back to around this time last year when the Steelers had one of their first team faux pas. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Locker rooms are often viewed as a sacred ground. So much so that when a coach is addressing a team, those moments are comparable to Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Nobody ever goes in. Nobody ever comes out. Nobody ever goes in. Nobody ever comes out. Players are expected to focus their full attention on their coach or a player who might decide to speak as well. But the world as we know it is changing. In a world of social media, things that were once kept secret are now shared to the internet world. Some players seek more recognition and approval from their fans and followers than they do their actual family and friends. 1,000 retweets now holds more weight than one pat on the back. Coaches and players now have to be more careful than ever of an unsolicited photo or a Snapchat video that will force them to apologize for something they thought was said behind closed doors. This past Sunday night, Pittsburgh Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin was under that impression that his post-game speech after his team beat the Kansas City Chiefs was also done behind closed doors. Little did he know... His star wide receiver was in the middle of recording a Facebook Live video of the fiery comments, which were as follows. When you get to this point in the journey, not a lot needs to be said. Let's say very little moving forward. Let's start our preparations. We spitted those ass a day and a half. They played yesterday. Our game got moved to tonight. We gonna touch down at 4 o'clock in the morning so be it we'll be ready for that but you ain't gotta tell them we coming because some of us might not like the damn whoop kicking and the chest pounding keep a low profile let's get ready to ball up with this again here in a few days and be right back at it hey man this is our story this ain't nobody else's story Another player then followed saying, Be cool on social media, man. This is about us. Nobody else, man. End quote. 
Ben Roethlisberger then appears to address the team, saying that they're going into a lion's den. It ain't going to be fun. Keep your mouth shut. Let's play Steelers football. But to Antonio Brown, those comments went on deaf ears. He was more concerned with his video views than he was on the views of his team or of the league that pays and also finds him, which says to stay off social media until after the post-game press conferences have ended. But hey, when you've got countless endorsements and are a Dancing with the Stars star, you've got to give the people what they want. In Tomlin's press conference on Tuesday, he apologized for his language, then ripped his star-wide receiver like a father would a son when he wasn't mad, but just disappointed, saying it was foolish of him to do that. It was selfish of him to do that. It was inconsiderate for him to do that. Brown later apologized on social media through a screenshot that he took of his notes app, saying his emotions and genuine excitement got the best of him. No mention if that excitement was from winning the game or from getting close to a million views on the Facebook Live video. But if the Steelers are worried about the New England Patriots using Tomlin's comments as fuel to the fire for the AFC Championship game on Sunday, no worries. Patriots head coach Bill Belichick has already said that he's not on Snapface and not worried about what they put on InstaChat. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to look ahead to next week's show. When we come back, we'll talk to a longtime NFL insider to recap the divisional playoffs and look ahead to the conference championships. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge anytime at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. Now we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text in to The Bridge. This week, we want to know, which teams will advance to the Super Bowl and why? A quick housekeeping note, as longtime listeners to the show might have noticed in the open, The Bridge will now be aired Monday through Friday on Sports Radio America at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific, with new episodes airing every Wednesday, featuring the usual cavalcade of segments and an interview with a guest to headline the show. We're also in the process of working on a second show that will air on Mondays and will be more sports talk specific, and I'll have more information about that in the coming weeks. Now to a new segment to the bridge, highlighting some quotes or sound bites from the latest week in sports. Here is the debut of the what? What you say? Game-winning plays make for epic sports moments and fantastic reactions of the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. From the players and coaches to the broadcasting crews and fans, there's sure to be some good ones. Such was the case when the Minnesota Vikings beat the New Orleans Saints in the divisional round this past Sunday on a miracle touchdown with no time left on the clock. 
It happened quickly. It was very unexpected, making it difficult just to wrap your head around what was happening. A breathtaking moment, difficult to put into words, especially on the spot. Even some of the best broadcasters in sports were at a loss for words. Here's Kevin Harland on Westwood One, attributing what would be the game-winning touchdown reception to new Vikings wide receiver, oh my goodness. It's third down and 10. Keenum is in the gun from his 39. Four-man front, six in the secondary. Shotgun snap. He moves up. He moves up. He throws a long line drive on the near side. Leaping to a catch made. Oh, my goodness. It's going to go in for the touchdown. Grabbed by Tibbs. He broke a tackle. 61-yard touchdown throw. The Vikings have won. The Minnesota Vikings have won. What you say? NFL Red Zone host Scott Hansen is seemingly never at a loss for words, having to summarize, analyze, and opinionize almost every play shown on the Sunday broadcast instead of just letting the actual broadcast breathe. Red Zone is faded to black until September, so we didn't get this live, but here's Scott's NFL fandom coming out in full force during that touchdown pass. Oh, come on! Get out! Was that the greatest? Was that the greatest finish in playoff history, divisional weekend history? What you say? Sounds sort of familiar, doesn't it? Harry, help me get up! the fans who can sometimes take losses harder than the players do remember when vikings kicker blair walsh missed what would have been the game-winning field goal in the wild card game against the seahawks troy surely still does oh, it. oh my god you missed it you gotta be kidding me he missed it you gotta be kidding me Oh my God! Oh, Troy. I'm so sorry. Oh my God! What you say? Hopefully, Troy is a little happier now, along with all Vikings fans, for finally catching a break. Great fan reactions were had at the Minnesota Wild game, in bars, and in the comforts of own homes. But we're here for the agony that comes with defeat. We want despair, tears, anger, breaking things. And there were definitely enough of those. From the Saints fan throwing his television off the porch, from another just fainting to the floor in public. But the one that stands out the most to me from this past weekend, which even gave some of the inspiration for this segment, was the Pittsburgh Steelers fan threatening his wife or girlfriend or mother or whomever it was that because of the Steelers' loss, it might be best to leave him alone. And as a warning, if you have children nearby, earmuffs please. 
follow through with his threats and is back to doing the dishes at least i'll always think that because that video will never not make me laugh what you say? now to this week's guest in russell baxter he's been an nfl insider analyst and historian for more than three decades and someone you've seen and heard on espn nfl network and various other outlets and can read at fan-sided NFL Spin Zone and ProFootballGuru.com, just to name a few. We'll definitely have Russell back on the show down the road so he can tell us some tales from 30-plus years covering the NFL, but this time he was kind enough to drop by to chat about the end result of last weekend's divisional playoffs and what we can expect to see in the championship games on Sunday. This was incredibly informative, and I left each of his answers with at least three new points learned and three follow-up questions to ask in the future as well, but tried to steer the ship and get in as much insight as we could. You can follow Russell on Twitter. He's at BaxFootballGuru. That's B-A-X Football G-U-R-U. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Russell Baxter. He's an NFL insider and guru. You can find his writing at fansided, NFL spin zone, and profootballguru.com, just to name a few. And he's nice enough to take some time to chat some football. Russell, thanks so much for joining the show. How are you? I'm doing great, John. Just getting ready for another big weekend. And uh, uh, sadly, only three NFL games left all year. So. That's right, but we did get spoiled in a sense with some great ones over the past weekend, thankfully, and we will get into that. I just wanted to first set the scene in a sense. I guess it's safe to say that aside from the Patriots getting back to the AFC Championship game for the now seventh consecutive year, the other three teams joining them are surprising to say the least, unless you're now a millionaire maybe from predicting that in Vegas or something. Well, I don't think the Vikings are so much a shock. Um, you know, I think a lot of people thought they'd have a bounce back year. Uh, remember, they they won the NFC North uh, in 2015. Uh, last year, got off to a 5-0 and start, actually ran into the Philadelphia Eagles in Philadelphia, handed them their first loss, and things kind of went south. But they bounced back this year. Now, the way they've done it, very much like Philadelphia, um, and talk about irony of ironies, you know, uh, you know, Philadelphia, think about what's happened with them as far as the starting quarterback. You know, it wasn't long ago that Sam Bradford was the starting quarterback for the Eagles. And it wasn't long ago that Sam Bradford was the starting quarterback for the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> and it wasn't long ago that Carson Wentz was the starting quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles. But lo and behold, because of injuries and circumstances, we're actually going to see two starting quarterbacks that not long ago, John, were teammates with the Los Angeles Rams. I mean, it just goes to show you the sixth degree of Kevin Bacon uh, scenarios that happened in the NFL because of injuries and coaching changes and free agency. 
The question is, how should Jeff Fisher feel about this? Those are his guys. They're going to be going into the championship round, and he had both of them. It's funny, too, that's been mentioned on Twitter and various other places. Of course, if you line both of them up with their jerseys on, they have seven and nine as their two numbers, which is a joke to accompany Jeff Fisher. But I don't know how he's feeling. Probably fishing, as we saw when he gets to hang out in his campgrounds and whatnot from Hard Knocks. But I don't know how he's supposed to feel about this. Well, I don't I don't know either. I mean, you know, obviously Jeff Fisher had a, a, a pretty decent run with the Tennessee Titans. Things did not go nearly as well with the uh, with the St. Louis slash Los Angeles Rams. But th- let's also be fair, John. You know, we saw the Rams in the playoffs this year for the first time since 2004, which is certainly not all on Jeff Fisher. This is an organization uh, that has struggled mightily, um, regardless of the head coach. I mean, how many, they hadn't won a division title since 03. I mean, that's a hell of a drought, one of the longer droughts in the league. And uh, But, you know, I, I understand the trepidation. Uh, you know, when you have the... Uh, one year you have the offensive rookie of the year in Todd Gurley, and then the following year you have the defensive rookie of the year, and then you have the first overall pick in the draft, and you know you go from quickly to four and twelve. You know heads are going to roll, but it is funny the circumstances of all these different quarterbacks who are all kind of tied to um, to Jeff Fisher. And now the Tennessee Titans job was opened as well so everything is just coming yeah, up for jeff all comes just... full, yeah it, it, it is a connected dots business and it's actually what makes um you know free agency and the coaching changes kind of interesting because i kid about the uh, six degrees of kevin bacon it really is that as we will see in the next couple of months moves are going to be made in terms of uh free agent quarterbacks and and other free agents from different positions who are all going to be tied to coordinators and head coaches who they have played for previously. And you mentioned two great points on two of the teams that are now in the conference championship game in the Vikings and the Eagles, because as you mentioned, the Vikings were an up and coming team. They were going to have this great rookie running back who unfortunately got hurt this great defense. And, Mm -hmm. and if at the quarterback position, but not in the worst circumstances at the quarterback position until injuries took over that. But Case Keenum's done a fantastic job. If you were to tell Vikings fans this before the season, I'm sure they would just be as shocked as Eagles fans are to now have Nick Foles leading them to a game away from the Super Bowl when their star quarterback who came along incredibly quickly in just his second year unfortunately goes down with an injury and puts them in a predicament as well. But fans have to be thrilled to where they currently are. And it's funny in this league how important the quarterback position is. And we've seen that in the last decade plus or so just with the Super Bowl winners, several familiar names making that list year after year. And this year is going to be much different because out of the three of Blake Bortles, Nick Foles, and Case Keenum, at least one is going to make the Super Bowl. And I don't have a dog in this fight as a Denver Broncos fan. It's been a while since they were fighting, unfortunately, this year. But I found myself rooting for certain teams in the playoffs just based on the quarterback position alone or in that the quarterback could potentially beat, say, Tom Brady by lighting up the scoreboard for a particular game. So I'm interested to see how you feel about this current state of the playoffs. If this is like maybe a Cinderella team getting a little bit too far in the NCAA 
tournament or if this is sort of a breath of fresh air for once? Well, you know, to me, I'm not one of those people who goes hog wild on the quarterback and the quarterback matchups and so on. To me, that's that's probably a little overplayed. I mean, this will always be a team game. I mean, if you're if you're going to be objective and honestly look at the fact that you think Peyton Manning led the Broncos to Super Bowl 50 and won it. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Uh, You know, that was a team that during the regular season turned over the ball 31 times and the majority came from their quarterbacks, Manning and Osweiler. Um, That's the beauty of the four teams that are left. Um, They're all very good defensively. The rankings for the Patriots don't look good right now because you got to factor in what happened to them early in the year. That was the team that gave up 128 points in their first four games. Now, I can do that on my fingers. That's 32 a game. Um, since then they've given up 182 points in 13 games. So they've turned things around. Minnesota was the top ranked defense in the league, two against the run, two against the pass. Philly's fourth. They're one against the run. Uh, Jacksonville speaks for itself. Jacksonville to me is intriguing because of the sacks and the takeaways. They're not a great run defense, but you alluded to the Vikings and you alluded to Dalvin cook. And that to me is what makes Minnesota so fascinating this year was the reversal of fortunes when it came to the running game. Rick Spielman went out and got a new offensive line because their offensive line failed them miserably last year. Dalvin Cook gets off to a sensational start, John, as you know, and then in the fourth game goes down. Then I think people kind of forgot about Minnesota's running game, but yet they have maintained it. Maybe not the spectacular that we saw from Dalvin Cook, but enough from Latavius Murray and enough from Jarek McKinnon. Here's a number to keep in mind when you think about the Vikings. It's almost startling. Last year, as a team, they ran for 1,205 yards. Think about that. That Seven players had more rushing yards than Minnesota Vikings last year. This year, they finished seventh in the league in rushing, and they do it persistently. They don't necessarily roll up. 150, 160 yards, but they do roll up a lot of carries. It keeps their defense off the field and enables Case Keenan to play action pass. And I don't think it's any coincidence that decently or even more than decently run games have helped quarterbacks like Case Keenum and especially Blake Bortles and of course the Eagles who went out and got another running back which surprised a lot of people to have a trio of running backs have the success that they've been able to have as a team and relieve some of that pressure from the quarterback position which is a slight transition in a sense to a team that doesn't necessarily have to worry about the quarterback position. And for me, was one of the bigger storylines from this past weekend in the Pittsburgh Steelers. And it was interesting earlier in the week when we heard that this big hit piece article was going to be coming about the New England Patriots and their dynasty was going to be coming to an end. And there's tensions in the locker room and everything is burning in New England, which after 17, 18 years, should probably happen anyway. So I don't understand why so many people got excited about this dynasty potentially ending. All dynasties do end. But it's interesting now with the Steelers losing to the Jacksonville Jaguars, a bigger picture look that some people have taken now at the team and sort of microscoped what has been happening throughout the entire season. 
which has been a head coach that might not necessarily have the best control of the locker room, which we've seen with Antonio Brown posting a Facebook video of his post-game speech last year. Things that have happened throughout the season that you sort of hear rumblings of, but since the Pittsburgh Steelers got swept under the rug a little bit. But heading into this game, all we heard was what they were going to do against New England, the rematch, how they would be able to beat them and advance to the Super Bowl, somewhat overlooking the Jaguars, who took that very much to heart and were able to play a fantastic game to get that win. I wanted to see where you stood now on the Pittsburgh Steelers, both the small picture for them not being able to win that game, even though they allowed 45 points, they were still right there within a touchdown for out several opportunities in that football game. But now a little bit bigger picture as to what this team might have to do, where they're going to stand when they head into the offseason. Well, I think what they need to do is, and I think Mike Tomlin needs to go back and take a look at how he has handled the team. I, mean, I think people forget when Mike Tomlin took over in 2007, they, they got off to a terrific start and they faded down the stretch. And ironically that year, John, they lost twice at home to the Jacksonville Jaguars. And Mike Tomlin after the season, because it was his first season as an NFL head coach, um, basically came out and said he really kind of worked that team into the ground. He was It was his first time doing the job. He changed his coaching philosophy. Um, maybe wasn't necessarily the, you know, can I say hard ass that he was in 2007. They turned around and won the Super Bowl in 2008. And maybe just maybe he's gone and needs to reevaluate himself as a head coach and maybe needs to be a little sterner than he was. Um, you know, but the bottom line is also this this is a head coach that has gone 11 seasons without a losing record. Um, they've been to the playoffs eight times. I mean, we're not talking about the Cleveland Browns um, here. We're talking about the Pittsburgh Steelers in terms of are they flawed? Absolutely. Do they have a lot of talent? Absolutely. Do they need to make some changes and adjustments? Absolutely. I thought, to me, the thing that was most interesting coming out of the game uh, was less about hearing about Le'Veon Bell and Mike Mitchell and all the different things and more hearing from somebody you don't hear a lot about from John. And that's David DeCastro who talked about the team's uh, uh, issues and, and so on. I mean, he's, he's a pro bowl player. He's an all pro player. He's not one of the more outspoken guys. And yet, you know, you can go back and listen to the sound or, or read the words and so on. Um, I think when something like that happens and it's a guy who doesn't usually open his mouth, it's time to take a look and reevaluate. And I just think that's what the Steelers need to do is they just need to go back and really evaluate. Um, I know there are some people calling for Tomlin's head. I, I have a tough time thinking, and I would have to really think of any coach in any profession who would be canned after 11 straight seasons where you didn't have a losing record. Right, and he would probably be hired by another team within ten minutes. They would gladly uh, take. I, I think I bet the I bet the under on that. By the way, <laughs> exactly, he's done so. incredibly well. It's just disappointing in a sense for Steelers fans, not to sound selfish, but to know that you have a future Hall of Fame quarterback, a future Hall of Fame wide receiver, and a future Hall of Fame running back and you're not able to get the job done the way you would want to, even though they have two recent Super Bowl championships, which people would definitely take. Can I put a bow on that for Absolutely. one second? Because uh, we should not sweep this under the rug because we have seen other great teams in different eras be 
playing in the same era as a really great team. So, you know, if you're going to say the Steelers this and the Steelers that, I get it. But we can't ignore what New England's done for for a decade and a half. So, um, is it bad luck? No. Is there a, is there a little of a, I get there's almost like a fixation with the Steelers and the players when it comes to the Patriots. Okay, so that to me might be the bigger issue. Maybe the maybe the biggest problem for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I'm saying this from afar is the Pittsburgh Steelers need to more worry about the Pittsburgh Steelers than they do the New England Patriots. Patriots fans will be the first to tell you, sure, they're going to have a future Hall of Fame tight end, but he was oft injured. They've done so much with, in a sense, so little as far as big names go, and as their mantra says, they just go out and do their job. Well, yeah, and and, and listen, there's, there's a lot of other teams that just don't go out and do that, John, as you know, and you know, they don't seem to be, you know, Bill Belichick has built something there very, very unique, especially in the salary cap era and the free agency era. And, you know, it, 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 I'm sure he would tell you in some regards that the quarterback is disposable as well. I mean, you know, you, you alluded to the article that came out from ESPN and so on. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing that was funny, I was talking about somebody about this today. To me, the piece that was done was really i had no problem with it because it was an investigative piece i think the problem was the title and as you know being in this business sometimes the writer doesn't get to do the title so it's one thing to evaluate and tell stories about what's going on inside and then it's different when the title says is this the beginning of the end so um Uh, just take that for what it's worth if you ever get a chance to read the piece. Right, and what could have also hurt that was the timing of its release. They almost had to release it a little bit sooner than they planned. It was supposed to come out, I believe, Friday at 8 a.m. Eastern time. It ended up coming out Thursday night because there was already so much chatter about this hit piece coming. So that leak, I think, hurt it as well, and you're right about the title. It was well done, and nothing to take away from Seth Wickersham. That was a ton of work that he put into it, and it was very fascinating but as i sort of alluded to it it would have been a bigger story had that come out say in 2003 when this dynasty was kind of on the upswing not so much now on the downswing because they have five championships and hey i think they're in a pretty good shape well i think but also to be honest with you john i don't think they would have would have all the different things that was going on that soon into the run i mean i think some of the things that have happened here have accumulated because you have an aging quarterback, by the way, we're all aging. Think of the, think of the circumstances if you're not aging. Okay. Um, and then you have Jimmy Garoppolo and then you, I'm sure you do have, um, you know, when you go back to the great dynasties in football, the sixties Packers, the seventies Steelers, um, you know, it was a different era. There was no free agency. You hung on to players and you hung on to players on loyalty as much as anything else. I remember when Bill Walsh talked about the 80s 49ers. He was less about loyalty. He's more like Bill Belichick, and there wasn't even free agency. But you will remember the Roger Craigs and the Ronnie Lotts and and guys who moved on when they still went, you know, had a chance to play for those teams, even after winning those four Super Bowls in the 80s and so on. Um, then then the Cowboys came around, and, and now the Patriots. And I think what Bill Belichick has learned from his days in Cleveland and then moving on to New England is 
there players are disposable. I mean, okay. I mean that the history has proven that. Okay. That's not me being callous. That's just the fact. And I think Bill Belichick understands that as much as anyone. And he's used that to his advantage. And, you know, in a league where we love our stars, Bill Belichick is more interested in players than maybe necessarily stars. He has been one of the best at knowing when to let go. And it often shocks people, but it does often work out. He's mm-hmm. great at that. Yes, and does. we might see that coming in the, in the next couple of years as well, depending on who sticks around. Did the Falcons loss to the Eagles surprise you at all? A lot of people had the Falcons. The Eagles were an underdog at home, even though they have Nick Foles. It was a little surprising they were the underdog. And we saw after the game that they had those dog masks. They did not take that lightly. Did that surprise you that the Falcons were held to 10 points? Was this a matter of this Eagles defense is for real? The home field helped them out and they were able to get the job done. Well, I mean, if you really look at the Atlanta Falcons season, the fact that they lost a 15-10 game was pro. Um, this was a team that was not as explosive on offense. Okay, the numbers bear that out. But it was also a team that was much better on defense, and the numbers bear that out. Okay? Um, I don't think Atlanta's defense got enough credit for the strides that it made during this year. They were more physical. They were a little better against the run. They still need some work there. Um, so they wound up losing a defensive battle um, against a team that early in that game looked very, very nervous, um, looked like they hadn't been in the playoffs in four years, which they hadn't. Uh, Nick Foles, uh, and and just about, I want to say just about uh, Clement, Blunt, and Jai all put the ball on the ground. So did Nick Foles. You know, they wound up fumbling four times in the first half, and they lost two of them, but they regained their composure. And because Atlanta wasn't overly explosive this year, um, you know, they they eventually succumbed. They got shut out in the second half. We saw that a lot with the Falcons this year, where they weren't able to sustain offense. So to me, it was somewhat apropos that they lost a 15-10 game because their defense was good, but the Philadelphia Eagles defense was just better. The ending to the Vikings and Saints game is now a historic one. One of the more exciting finishes you'll ever see, especially with no time left on the clock when Diggs is able to get that touchdown. But if you looked at the game before, say, with three minutes left, the Vikings were really in control for most of it. And if you shut the game off at halftime, you probably would have thought they had no problem winning that football game. But the Saints end up coming back and really having the win in hand. Is there a major takeaway that you have from that game, whether it's the Vikings as a whole or that one particular play that everyone is talking about, if it was the defensive blunder from it, the offensive miracle from it, after having a couple days to sort of sit on this, what are your thoughts on what ended up being one of the most miraculous finishes we'll see? Well, to me, you know, going into the game, the Saints uh, had obviously turned things around since 0-2 start. They began the season in Minnesota, losing on a Monday night. Um, They had turned the things around on defense significantly. Um, But the difference was that opposed to being an improved defense, they ran into a Minnesota defense that was just flat out better than they were. And that persistency with the Vikings, the balance with the Vikings. Um, and, you know, even though the Saints defense was better, John, they still were fallible. We saw them 
have to, you know, give up a lot of points to the Redskins and lost. Remember a couple of weeks before this game on, uh, on Sunday, uh, you do recall that they were in a battle with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Right. And Jameis Winston threw a touchdown pass in the final 10 seconds and beat them. That kind of gets lost. That was a head scratch. Didn't wind up, and it didn't wind up affecting the Saints in terms of winning the division. So it kind of got swept under the rug a little. So there's still some issues with their defense, but they've got some young players there. They had a hell of a draft. Um, there's tremendous potential there. Um, as far as the play goes, every time I look at it, I think of the same thing. Uh, young Marcus Williams, and I know he had an interception earlier. Um, he looked like a guy who wasn't trying to make a tackle. He looked like a guy who was just trying to get the hell out of the way. And I don't know if that came from somebody telling him, don't get a pass interference call. I'm, I'm only guessing. And, and we do have to keep in mind that Minnesota didn't need a touchdown to win the game. All they needed was a field goal. So if, if that even if that play is complete and they make the tackle, it's very, very possible that Minnesota still comes in there and wins with a field goal. On the other hand, the decision for Marcus Williams to not to kind of get out of the way, I didn't understand it in the sense that how about if he makes the tackle and they miss the field goal? You see, to me, he didn't miss a tackle. To me, he avoided any semblance of a tackle, right. which is totally different. That's what it looked like to me as well. It, it looked right. more like he was avoiding a potential yes. pass interference than it did. He was trying to go for his legs and make the no, tackle. No, I didn't think go for it. Listen, if that's the way he goes for his legs, then he needs tackling 101. Right. It's a play that will live on for many years. Hats off to the Vikings for finally getting one in their favor, right? After yeah. all these years of having missed field goals and miracle plays go against them, they finally get one in their favor. So, well, let's not. Look, look, I'll dial back to history as I as I get ready to get out of here and so on. Um, you know, we know about Doug Flutie and what he did um, against Miami when you know in that great game. But the original hail mary pass, as you well know, was Roger Staubach to Drew Pearson in the 1975 Minnesota-Dallas Divisional Playoffs. So it took 40-something years, but the Vikings kind of got revenge. Finally. Finally. And I hate to wrap up interviews with prediction questions. I mean, we could talk for another three hours just on what's going to come this upcoming weekend and what we might see in the Super Bowl. But based on an educated guess, I guess you could say, who do you think has the best chance to get to the Super Bowl? Who will see you play in Minnesota for the chance at that Lombardi trophy? Well, I mean, I, I guess, it, you know, I, I think there's probably a lot of wishful thinking on a lot of people's parts to see Minnesota pull this off and actually become the first home team to do it. But I just think they're the better overall team than Philadelphia right now. This is a different game with Carson Wentz. Okay. And I'm not a jump all over the quarterback person and think it's all about the quarterback. But there's certain things he could do against this defense that I don't think Nick Foles can. I mean, it's a very fast Minnesota defense. It's a defense that doesn't blitz a lot. It doesn't have to blitz a lot, okay, because they get a lot of pressure from their front four. They've got great cover people. Again, Philadelphia's defense, one against the run, fourth in the league, suspect at the corners. Minnesota doesn't seem like it's suspect anywhere. Um, and you combine that persistent to the see they've had all year with their running game. And I know there's gonna be a lot of dog masks in the, in the car, but, and I'm not 
let's put it this way. There's going to be a lot of dog mask at Lincoln financial field, but I'm throwing the Vikings the bone here. That's a great way to put it. The atmosphere yeah. is going to be fantastic as you mentioned, but that is a great way to put it. It would make for a great storyline for them to get there. And in a sense, end a far too long curse. And I guess all we can say for the Super Bowl is, Hey, if Tom Brady gets there, try to knock him down once or twice or three times. Cause that seems to be the way that you have the best shot of beating him. And I have to lean New England. They, they're they're playing at home. They've been in this situation. Jacksonville, uh, you know, haven't been. They hadn't won a. Uh, I'm sorry. They had had won a division title since 1999 uh, when they won the AFC South this year. Uh, in fact, in 1999, it was the AFC Central when it was six teams with the Cleveland Browns in, in, inside of it. Throwback um, Thursday also, for when this show yeah. comes out as a podcast for everyone listening. Yeah, and the that's AFC also, Central. by the way, the last time they were in the AFC title game. The one wild card here to keep an eye on, okay, and I'm not saying Jacksonville's going to pull it off. Can they? Absolutely. Because they can rush the passer. Um, they can, Again, like Minnesota, they can cover with seven. Um, Ron, uh, Rob Gronkowski is going to probably deal with two very fast outside linebackers in Telvin Smith and uh, Miles Jack. So that doesn't necessarily mean they have to put a safety on Rob Kronkowski. So that'll be interesting to watch. But I'm going to say the wild card. I know Doug Marone is the head coach, but I don't have to remind you who is in that Jacksonville front office. He knows something about beating the Patriots in big games. He did it twice in the Super Bowl. He also did it in Foxborough six years ago when the Patriots had won a bunch of home games in a row. And that's Tom Coughlin. Keep an eye on the influence in this game. I'm not saying Tom Coughlin's coming down on the sidelines, but Tom Coughlin knows if you're in Brady's face and you hit him a lot, like the Giants did in those two Super Bowls, you can pull this off. And you know what? The best part for Tom Coughlin, his cheeks will stay from becoming that red, rosy dried. <laughs> he looks just so miserable in the cold. He can now just sit up in that booth and make the calls down to the field for once. I'm sure well, he's they, thrilled. They have done it. I mean, think about this for a second, John. I'll leave you with this. If you include the playoffs, Jacksonville is 12 and 6. Last year, they won three games. Man, it's a hell of a turnaround. They've had a great season. And it's yeah. funny to think if we had another team that didn't have a great quarterback or a team that wasn't supposed to be here in a sense that people have said, not New England, that we would enjoy this more. But New England being there is going to draw out many more people to either see them lose or, of course, the New England fans to root for them to get number six. So I think them being there does help this. I think we're going to be in for another fun weekend of games. And the Super Bowl won't disappoint. I have a good feeling that whatever storyline we end up getting will be a good one, and I'm sure you'll be all over it. And I thank you for coming on to the show to help me be all over it as well. Your insight was great on the games that we had over the weekend and looking forward to what we hope to see. And I'll have to have you on to talk about 30-plus years of what you've done just in the business in general and take a little break from the X's and O's. But until then, thanks again for this. Enjoy next weekend, and hopefully we could talk again soon, sir. Thank you very much. Thanks again to Russell for jumping on the show. We'll now jump into the return of the toll booth with Donnie Wrightside. Donnie is a professional handicapper who knows a thing or two about the lines of the sports world and will be joining the bridge for a weekly segment to help us get on the right side of those lines. He'll offer up some of his best bets to correspond with the bridge fade of the week. 
where listeners are urged to completely go in the opposite direction of what the show picks, which we will do now. The Vikings are riding high after the miracle win in Minnesota to advance to the NFC Championship game and have momentum on their side. Traveling to Philadelphia to face the Eagles, who needed some fortune of their own to beat the Falcons 15-10. The crowd will be crazy at Lincoln Financial Field, but the Vikings are due after decades worth of almosts. For the upcoming weekend, with the line set as of the recording of this show, give me the Minnesota Vikings minus three and a half on the road in Philadelphia against the Eagles to advance to Super Bowl 52. Now to someone who actually knows what he's doing, you can find Donnie at DonnieRightSide.com and at SportsBookReview.com and also follow him on Twitter. He's at RightSideVP. And remember, this segment is for entertainment purposes only. Without further ado, this week's edition of The Tollbooth with Donnie Wrightside. Has anybody got a dime? Somebody's got to go back and get a shitload of dimes. Hey folks, Donnie Wrightside here from sportsbookreview.com and donniewrightside.com. Happy New Year! It's been a while since we've been back here on the Bridge Podcast here coming to you with the Tollbooth Edition. You know what this edition is about here when we come on here. It's about making money. Had a pretty successful year in 2017. Let's hopefully see if we can turn it over to 2018, folks. There's a lot of money still left to be won in the NFL. It is AFC-NFC Championship Weekend, one of my favorite weekends of the year. Then you get the two-week break until you have Super Bowl Sunday on February 4th. Let's get down to the business here. There are two football games here, folks, that will be taking place this Sunday that we do want to go over. Both of these should be some pretty good tilts here. If we take a look at the first game, 3.05 Eastern time start, 3.11, 3.12, Jacksonville and New England. And then you have the nightcap, 3.13, 3.14 on the rotation. The Minnesota Vikings travel to the city of brotherly love to take on the Philadelphia Eagles. If we take a look at some lines here at the time of broadcast and taping now, the Jacksonville Jaguars over over under in their football game with the New England Patriots, 46 and a half. And if we take a look at some of the lines, bet online showing minus eight and a half in the favor of the home team, New England Patriots. If we take a look at the second game, which is really the one that I want to focus on here, uh, early line indicators here opened up at about three and a half, folks. Now down to about three right now at the time of taping over under in this game, folks. Looks like it's sitting at 39 at this point, and those are the numbers that we want to go over. Minnesota and Philadelphia, folks, a mixed bag in this one. Two backup quarterbacks. Maybe you could say the third string quarterback in Minnesota being Case Keenum. Very solid season. Nick Foles has taken over every game he's finished. This year, he is 4-0. Obviously, they did have a loss to the Dallas Cowboys last game of the year, but he only had a few possessions in that football game. Let's take a look to see how this game is going to break down. We already know both of these defenses, folks, very good. Checking the tail of the tape. If we take a look here, folks, at the Vikings versus backup quarterbacks and rookies that they played this year, there were five games that involved those. The Chicago Bears game, 20-17, to that total of 37 points. The Green Bay Packers, the first time around after Aaron Rodgers, 
Dodgers got hurt early in that football game, 23-10, to 10, which is a total of 33 points. The Cleveland Browns, a little bit of the outlier here, 33-16 final, which was 49 total points. They did beat the Green Bay Packers in Lambeau in frigid conditions, 16 to nothing, and then ended up the season there beating Chicago 23-10, to 10, which again was 33 points. You see where we're going in this one. If we take a look at the Philadelphia Eagles, folks, over the nine home games, you know, eight home games during the regular season, one in the playoffs, they average a total of 13 points giving up at home. And if you saw the last four games, folks, which even included a game against the Dallas Cowboys that had the backups on defense playing three full quarters of that football game. The Chicago Bears four weeks ago there gave up three points to them, excuse me, four home games ago. The Oakland Raiders folks in chilly conditions, they gave up 10 points to them. The Dallas Cowboys won six to nothing, so obviously only giving up six points in that one. And you just witnessed in the NFC Divisional round a 15 to 10 win by the Philadelphia Eagles over the Atlanta Falcons. So hard fought victories. We look, we know the Philadelphia Eagles are going to be a little bit offensively challenged heading into this football game after losing Carson Wentz. They're going to have to win it on the ground and play solid defense. The same thing should be going for the Minnesota Vikings heading out on the road, knowing that they're not going against a super firepower type of team a la Drew Brees back there last week. So you're going to look for the team that's going to make the least amount of mistakes in this one is probably going to come out ahead. So what's that going to lead to, folks? To me, that's going to have me leaning on this one towards the under 39, somewhere in that 14-10, 17-10, 17-14, 21-17 type of game here, which would still keep you under the number. Similar to last week when we had the Atlanta Falcons filled up the Eagles under the total of 41. We're going to go again with the under in the NFC Championship game. Rotation 313-314 this weekend, 6.40 p.m. Eastern time. You're going to want to check out that game and bet the under 39 points, folks. Let's have a great year again on the Bridge Podcast here. This is Donnie Wrights out with the Toll Booth Edition. Let's try to make some money out there, folks. You know where it's headed. Take the Eagles, Minnesota Vikings, under 39, and let's start off this year with a bang. Left side! Strong side! Left side! Strong side! Left side! Strong side! Left side! We'll close out the show with another installment of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. Joe and I have been teammates on the basketball court, sports editors for our college newspaper that is no longer in literal print and hosts. For the prestigious John and Joe Sports Show, once found on 99.5 WUSR Scranton and the Royal Television Network. Joe usually sees more movies in a year than the 52 weeks within it to hold the reins here, but don't worry, there aren't any plot spoilers, so you'll still be able to see these films. Just now, with a better understanding of what will be in store if you do so, and with Joe's final rating of the film compared to something or someone in the sports world. This week, Joe will break down Molly's Game, which Rotten Tomatoes describes as... Based on the true story of Molly Bloom, an Olympic-class skier who ran the world's most exclusive high-stakes poker game for a decade before being arrested in the middle of the night by 17 FBI agents wielding automatic weapons. Her players included Hollywood royalty, sports stars, business titans, and finally, unbeknownst to her, the Russian mob. Her only ally was her criminal defense lawyer, who learned that there was much more to Molly than the tabloids led us to believe. 
You can find Joe on Twitter. He's at Duke Mish. That's D-U-K-E-M-I-C-H. You can also read his movie reviews, previews, and ratings at cupofdashjoe.com. Again, that's cupofdash or hyphen or whatever you'd like to call it, joe.com. Get your popcorn ready. Here's this week's edition of Five Minutes in the Film Room with Joe Burris. What's up, everybody? I'm Joe Burris, and this is Five Minutes in the Film Room. I worship at the altar of Aaron Sorkin. He wrote the screenplay for A Few Good Men, Social Network, Moneyball, Steve Jobs, all fantastic films. And let's not forget his time with one of the greatest TV shows of all time, The West Wing. The show that made Sorkin's Walk and Talk famous. The Walk and Talk is exactly what it sounds like, as a lot of the show's dialogue occurs while characters move through the halls of the White House. Sorkin helps create action where there is none. So the man knows what he's doing. But Molly's Game was an entirely different undertaking for the acclaimed writer, because he also took a seat in the director's chair. So could Sorkin elevate his writing, damage it, or keep it on par? Let's go to the tape. Molly's Game has two things going for it. The writing, obviously, and the acting. Jessica Chastain is one of the best actresses in the business right now, and I'll see a movie if the only thing I know about it is that she's in it. There couldn't be a better combination than Chastain's acting with Sorkin's writing. She once again commands the screen and masters Sorkin's snappy dialogue. Based on a true story, Molly's Game is about Molly Bloom, so the story is driven by the lead character. Without the strength of Chastain, Molly's Game fails from the start. The only thing that makes a character better is having someone to bounce off of. In Molly's Game, it's Idris Elba, and he is awesome. No doubt the man is talented. He just hasn't gotten enough roles to show off his chops, and he's been in some stinkers. But Elba shines in Molly's Game. Again, to master Sorkin's dialogue and stand toe-to-toe with Chastain, it's quite impressive and exactly what the film needed. The best parts of the movie were when Chastain and Elba were on the screen together. The problem with the movie lies with the directing. Instead of elevating the film, Sorkin holds himself back. Movies like The Social Network, Moneyball, and Steve Jobs all have to balance multiple time periods and flashbacks, as does Molly's Game. But it's on the director to handle those transitions. David Fincher made one of my favorite movies ever, The Social Network, taking Sorkin's dialogue and keeping the story exciting throughout, even though the movie is really just talking with no action. Danny Boyle does the same thing with Steve Jobs, perfecting the famous Sorkin walk and talk. And Bennett Miller keeps the proper pace with Moneyball, which is not as snappy as Sorkin's other films. Whether Miller took the dialogue in that direction, he did something right, because the movie is sound. It's not that Sorkin's direction is bad, it just doesn't elevate his amazing work. As a result, the movie is longer than it should be. Two hours and twenty minutes is just too long. The movie drags at times, as three stories are balanced... There's a present day and two stories in the past that deal with Molly getting into running poker games and Molly as a kid. As I said, present day with Chastain and Elba is the best part. Kevin Costner is very good as Molly's father, but the transition from past to present, back to past, isn't very fluid. The stories build and then the transitions more so hit a reset button instead of continuing the pace and flow. The movie is still good, I still enjoy it, I'll still watch it again. But I guess I've just come to expect more from a Sorkin script. The bottom line, Molly's Game has a strong script and superb acting to make for a solid movie. 
However, I can't help but think that in the hands of an acclaimed director like a David Fincher, a Danny Boyle, a Bennett Miller, this movie would be just that much better. But I'm more than willing to give Sorkin another go at it, because as a first-time director, honestly, he did a pretty decent job. The bar was just so high. I'll compare Molly's game to Magic Johnson. One of the greatest and most entertaining players of all time, Magic electrified crowds for years on the court. But in a short-lived coaching stint, he went 5-11 and and instead tried to return as a player. Maybe Sorkin will only have one stint as a director, but either way, he's still one of the best writers. So I'll always buy a ticket. Sexy. Check! Good. Check, please. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Wednesday night. And also, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. You can find The Bridge on Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn. And can listen to a brand new show on Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time by searching for Sports Radio America in the TuneIn app. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dabble in the NBA dive into Major League Baseball, circle the wagons of the National Football League, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.